Awesome. Well, thank you guys for being here at Mission Church this morning. My name is Eric Baker. I'm one of our pastors here um, at Mission and have the opportunity to be the preaching and teaching pastor here. And so on behalf of myself and those of us who call Mission Church our church home, thank you guys for coming and being with us today. Um, if you have a Bible, I'm going to encourage you to go ahead and open up that Bible and turn with me to the book of Romans. Romans is found in the New Testament. It kind of goes to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then you've got Acts, and then you've got the book of Romans. And so today we're going to continue our sermon series uh, through Romans 9, 10, and 11. But we'll be covering a section in Romans 9 today um, as part of a sermon series called Never Fails. Um, Paul has been laying out the gospel um, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to this church that is in Rome. He's been explaining that and he kind of reaches this major climax in the book of Romans chapter 8 when he unveils even more of God's purpose and plans as he confirms in us all of these types of uh, promises that are true of those whom God has saved. And I'll give you some of those, that they've been justified, they've been called, they've been predestined, they have been sanctified, they will be glorified. So he, he gives all of these promises, and the readers and the listeners of Paul's preaching and teaching at this moment, you know, they're exuding with excitement, thinking about the greatness of God. And so they as well are on the highest of heights, thinking about how awesome God is. And then, like most of us, after we have high highs, there can be low lows. And we go, okay, this is awesome, but it's kind of like going to Disneyland, and, and they charge you $500 a piece for you to go stand in line to ride two rides, right? And you think, this place is awesome. And then you go home and you're like, I just paid $500 to ride two rides, okay? So there, there's these heights of heights, and then there becomes these questions, all right? Every one of us is followers of Jesus. Um, if you are a follower of Jesus, and if you're not a follower of Jesus, we're praying for you that God would save you today. But in this, you should not just take what any preacher says or anybody who quotes a, a Bible verse. We um, should really dive into what the Scripture says as a whole to be able to understand that. And so Paul realizes, because he's a great public speaker, um, some people even say that Paul up to this point probably had the equivalent of two PhDs. This man was very educated in the things of the world, the philosophies of the world. This man knew his stuff. He knew his Bible and he knew the culture, all right? So this is extremely important that this guy that is theologically sound, yet simultaneously is culturally contextual to the people that he's speaking to. And so Paul knows, because again, he's this great speaker, that because I've said all of these things, there are naturally going to be a low of, of questions, all right? And we have seen in chapter 9, after we've come off the top of that climax, and we go into chapter 9, there is this major question amongst the readers of Paul and the listeners of Paul. And the question is, is that, okay, so these promises are awesome. These truths are great. God's made a covenant with these people. He calls them the Israelites, all these sorts of things. But now we see that God is also saving Gentiles. But, and, and these promises are great. Justification, being called, glorification, sanctification, being saved. All of those things are amazing. But Paul, it appears as though if, if God says in the Old Testament that the Israelites are his chosen people, and God's chosen people, or God sends Jesus, right, to the Jews, and the Jews don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and a majority of these people called the Jews don't follow Jesus, does that mean that God's word has failed? That his covenant didn't last? That his love for his people was conditional? That he's done with these people. These are the questions that are, are the listeners are asking Paul as he's diving into these promises because for us, if you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile, okay? We're all Gentiles here. Hug, all right? So in this place, the, the Gentiles are also going, they're saying, okay, if, it, if these are true but God failed at doing it 
and he's failed the Israelites, then that means he can also fail and will fail us as well. All right? So Paul gives us his thesis there in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, when he says this, But it is not as though the word of God has what? Has failed. It has not failed. It looks like it's failed, but it hasn't. This has actually all been a part of God's plan. It's been a part of his plan from the very beginning to prove, and Paul's going to spend chapters 9, 10, and 11 in Romans, again, proving that his plan hasn't failed. And so for the last several weeks, I've given you two proofs. The first proof that we see inside of Scripture in chapter 9 of the book of Romans is this idea of God's Word isn't going to fail because God has created something called election. That He has chosen. He did not have to save anyone. He does not have to save anyone. And yet, He has so chosen in His sovereign will that out of a group of my enemies, I'm going to save some of them. That's what He says in His text. He goes on from there, and the second proof that we spent several weeks on is, well, if God has the right to choose whom will be saved, who won't be saved, all that sort of stuff, then doesn't that destroy God's character? And then Paul explains how it doesn't destroy God's character, that it actually upholds God's character, that what God says he's going to do, he's going to do it. Do you know why? Because he's God, and we aren't. And so when you're the creator of all of the universe, when you are the grand potter, to use Paul's illustration in the book of Romans, you can do with the the clay what you choose to do with it. That you can show mercy to who you want to show mercy with, that you can harden whom you want to harden. And so Paul is going to to go further today with a third proof that's going to spin and expand over actually the next few chapters of this book. And so I'm going to title this proof of why God's word never fails is this. God's will or God will complete his mission. All right. God will complete his mission. He is going to do this. Romans chapter 9, because a question that we've had come up in our mission community groups, those are groups like we meet on Sunday mornings here at Burlinger and Christian Academy, but we want to invite you, if you're not a part of a mission community group, we have three of them that meet inside of Bowling Green all over the city, Um, and so we come together, we have a meal together, we pray together, we take care of one another, we engage in mission together, and we spend time diving into these questions that often arise Uh, from these sermons and so in that one of the questions that arose in our group was okay I'm kind of coming to grips with this idea that that God is about electing and choosing and all of those are biblical terms I'm coming to grips that this does not destroy God's character that God is God he can do whatever God wants to do and and so I'm coming to grips with that but what about evangelism Because if God is going to save who God is going to save, and God is ultimately in control of all of that, then doesn't that destroy missions and evangelism? Okay? And hopefully over the next few weeks here, next few months here, years, um, I'm going to be able to prove to you that it doesn't. That all of that is also a part of God's ultimate fulfillment of whose mission? His mission. We do not have a mission, ladies and gentlemen. God has a mission that he invites us to join into. All right? That's why we call our church Mission Church. Do not get confused. It is not our mission. It is God's mission. And because it's God's mission, he has invited us, called us to join in with his redemptive story. And and the way that he is going to transform the world is through the proclamation of the gospel from your lips, from my lips as well. All right? So, in your Bibles, Romans chapter 9 says this. We're going to go through 24 through 29 today. All right? Let's read, follow along with me. Says this. Um, Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. 
As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not my beloved, I will call my beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, um, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would be like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. All right? So that's, that's our context. We're going to break down this scripture um, here today. And so if you want, while I get started here, why don't you go ahead and go to the Old Testament because we're about to go to the book of Hosea, all right? The book of Hosea is toward the last half of the Old Testament. He's considered to be one of the minor prophets um, in the Old Testament. But we're going to go check that out here in just a second. All right few preaching points, a few contextual points that you really need to get about this. Let's look at verse, hold your place in Romans as well. In Romans chapter 9 verse 24, this is what it says, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is a huge statement that Paul has just made. That we miss contextually. All right? Again, what is the initial primary question that's being asked? Well, it appears as though God has failed the Israelites. All right? So Paul talks a lot about Israelites. We've done that over the last few weeks. You can look at missionbg.com, listen to all of that stuff. Okay? But in that, Paul now is transitioning to say all of these processes, all these promises, things like election, things like chosen, things like mercy, things like grace, things like hardening, they are not only true for the Israelites, but ladies and gentlemen, they are also true for the Gentiles. Now if you're sitting there and you hear that statement and you're a, a, an authentic Jew, both your parents are Jewish, your family tree is Jewish, and somebody looks at you and says that all of the promises that were given to the Israelites in the Old Testament are also true of the Gentiles, ladies and gentlemen, you have just been greatly offended. Greatly offended. Isn't this the problem that's going on in Galatians? That even the Galatians Christians were trying to make these Gentile believers, that Gentiles, they start to follow Jesus. These Jews, some of them, a remnant of them, begin to follow Jesus, and yet they can't get rid of their Jewishness. So they show up to the church at Galatia, and, and they're telling these other Christians, hey, being following Jesus is great, but you're also going to have to be Jewish. All right, so they're going around to all the grown men saying, all right, next Sunday, baptisms and circumcisions. There's no quicker way to ruin a church and cause a split and have all the dudes leave if they're going to be baptisms and circumcisions. This is a major issue, okay? And I, I want to say this because it's not the main point for today, but you must understand that the Bible destroys racism. Racism during this time was not a, a condition of color. It was a condition of race. If you weren't an Israelite, you were a dog. You were the most dis despicable human beings. There are quotes from Jewish people, thank God you didn't make me a Gentile. They hated them. The gospel was for them. The blessings of God were only for the Jews, right? The, the land was only for the Jews. You hated, despised, were racist toward every other person people group on the planet and it simply wasn't based on their color because again it, it's not a matter of um, where did dark colored people come from it's the question is, is where did all the white people come from all right so we're looking at a a group a sea of people of similar tones of skin and yet there is major racism within the scripture that over and over and over again Jesus speaks against Paul speaks against it Peter had to learn the hard way because even after being a follower of Jesus brothers struggled with racism all right 
And finally, God wrecks him and changes him. But you've got to understand that. A lot of times when we see things into Scripture, terms like all, terms like nations, terms like world, all of that is in reference to God. This gospel, Jesus, is going to save people from every race. So imagine you're a Jew and you've just heard this. All these promises that God has given to the Jews, he's giving to the Gentiles. This causes a stir. And yet the gospel always destroys those things. Now, there is so much more that I, I want to say specifically about that. But I feel like we kind of have to go on. But you need to understand this. There is no place for racism within Christendom. No place. It does not exist. We are Christian. All right? We're Christian. We're followers of Jesus. That's what unites us. That's what brings us together. That's what connects us. And that's what will keep us going on. All right. So when we look at this, Paul says, yes, even those, uh, even us whom he called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. He probably lost everyone right there with that statement. But he keeps going. And he uses the Old Testament. He uses promises from the Old Testament to the Jews to say what was said to the Jews in the Old Testament is really now for the Gentiles. And he goes on. What's he quote? He quotes from the book of Hosea. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. All right. Now, the book of Hosea. Let me see. Since I told you to go there, I need to go there myself. He's a little hard book to find. There it is. Okay. So the book of Hosea. Hosea, prophet of God, man of God, loves God, is the mouthpiece of God. This man is like um, in, in a time where the Jewish people are not following after God. There is major division within Israel and the Jewish um, culture as a nation and as a people group. They are following after idols. And God always calls up a remnant from the Israelites, and from that remnant always calls up a speaker, a prophet, all right? A prophet isn't a person that just foretells the future. The actual terminology, prophet, means God's mouthpiece or messenger of God, all right? So every time that you hear the word prophecy or prophet, don't always be thinking somebody's going to close their eye and say you're walking down a, a tunnel and there's a light at the end, okay? We're talking about people who are saying God is speaking through them. He has a message for God's people, similarly to what I'm doing today. I'm the preacher teacher here. God is hopefully speaking through me, through his word, into the lives of people. He's got something he wants you to hear. So he calls this man Hosea amongst a group of people who are not following after God. And what's wild about God is what he's about to do is he is about to do something amazing uh, or difficult. It's a beautiful burden in Hosea's life as a living parable for God and his people. All right? So we're about to read about a true statement or a true story in a man's life but is also symbolic of God's relationship with the Israelites all right so I'll explain that to you Hosea real man but even in this story he's going to represent the the headship of God all right so it starts out and you meet this guy um, Israel's rebellion and rejection of God and Jesus wasn't a surprise that's what Paul's going to say it's not a surprise all right um, God foretold that it was going to happen in the Old Testament. And so in this, he, he tells us here in Hosea chapter 1, he says, uh, verse 2, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself of wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer... Um, and the daughter of 
Diablo or Diablam or somebody, all right? And she conceived and bore him a son. All right, so we've got two characters starting out here. We've got Hosea. He represents who? It's okay, people. He represents who? God. All right, he represents God. And God tells him to go, I can't even, I won't even, besides reading that in scripture, I'm going to change the word prostitute because I hate the way saying the word whoredom. All right, so prostitute. God tells a man of God. Now, step out. Sermon in a sentence. That does not give you permission to go to any non-Christian. That is not what this scripture is saying. All right? All right, step back in. All right, so God um, tells this prophet of God, this man of God, to go marry a prostitute. Now, there is some discrepancy there amongst scholars. Some say she didn't become a prostitute till after they got married. Which totally is messed up. All right. Others say he kind of went to the brothel. God told me to marry you, a stripper, a prostitute, and we're going to get hitched. All right? Now, Gomer is his wife. That's a great name. Name your daughter that. Um, we're going to learn about a lot of great names today. So we've got Hosea, who represents God, and we have Gomer, who's a real woman. This is historical happening, but is also a symbol. Gomer is a symbol of the Israelites, or we could even say the church. Okay? Y'all following me? All right, so here we go. If you're not, you're lying, which it's okay. Uh, follow along with me. All right, so she bore him a son, Homer. Uh, Homer, <laughs> that's funny. Hosea and Gomer, they get married. They do what married people do. I don't have any PowerPoints for that. You know what that is. All right, so they do what married people do, and guess what? She has a baby, all right? She has a baby, and look at verse 4. It says, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish that house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. All right, so... They do what married people do, and they have a son, and God tells them to name this boy Jezreel. Does anybody know what Jezreel means? Okay, good. Jezreel means two different things. It means either to sow or to scatter, all right? Now, how is that symbolic of Israel and potentially even the church? Is that they exist, but they're not together. They are scattered amongst the nations, living, many of them, as pagans, not worshiping God. All right? So this is a real boy, but he is also illustrating how Israel, the Israelites are scattered throughout the world. All right. So he goes on. One. All right. So verse 6, it says this. She conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy. Come here, No Mercy. This is, you know, you're like snapping Instagram photos. Who's that? Oh, it's my daughter, No Mercy. That's a great name. All right. And he tells this girl, No Mercy. Her, her real name is Lo Ru Hama. All right. That makes you sound really smart, especially when we put that Hebrew ha at the end of it. All right? It means no mercy, no love, no compassion. So God tells this man who he's married to this woman who's a prostitute to name their daughter no mercy. Now what's interesting about this is even in that context, the first child, it says that they did this together. It's believed by most scholars that no mercy was actually a child of her prostitution. So this godly man is married to a prostitute. They have a child. God tells him to name their child together, No Mercy. I mean, sorry, um, Scattered. Great name. She goes and gets pregnant by another man, 
And God tells Hosea to name this daughter that is not his, No Mercy. Hosea's relationship with No Mercy was not the same. Because ultimately, it was not his biological child. Okay? So that's why he says, no mercy, no compassion. All right? Now, this keeps going. It's even more interesting. All right? Um, It says this in verse 8. When she had weaned, no mercy, she conceived and bore another son. Notice there. It doesn't tell us that she had that son with Hosea. Again, it's believed by many scholars that this new child was also a product of her prostitution. So mama's coming home. I don't know how that would work in your house, but that would be a difficult day. Hey, I'm pregnant. Really? How'd that happen? Don't tell me. (laughs) All right. Major problem at our house, all right? Major problem at your house, I don't know. But we believe in monogamy, all right? It's marriage relationship. No one's invited to that, all right? No one is invited to that party. And mama keeps bringing home fellas, and she's pregnant by them. What does God tell Hosea to name this child? Call his name, not my people. Why is that a fitting name? Because it's not his son. Not his son. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. So look at this in, in their family situation, but this is also what's happening with the Israelites. They are scattered throughout the world, all right? And, and some would even argue that until the mid-1940s, they were scattered, And then they got their state back. They got their nation back. All right? And so you can see the historical context that's also taking place here. But during this time, God is saying to the Israelites, He is saying to them, You're scattered. I am showing you no mercy because you are not my people. See, we automatically go, Oh, the Jews are all God's people. That's not what the scripture says. There are seasons, and there is always a remnant of those people that are always God's people. No doubt about it. We learned about that in Romans chapter 9. But as a whole, they are not always his people. Now, he keeps going here, and he keeps saying all of these amazing things. Flip your page to chapter... um, Two, and it keeps talking about the relationship between Hosea and, and Gomer. She would come, and then she would leave, and then she would come, and then she would leave, and then she would chase after her lovers, all of these sorts of things. And then God says this, verse 14 of chapter 2. This is, this is amazing. This is beautiful, beautiful text here. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. This is Hosea. This is God. It's this idea of, I, I, will, I will, though I'm, because earlier he talks about how upset he is about this. And then he begins to have compassion upon her. I will uh, woo her back to myself. I will, I will become attractive to her again. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. This is a woman, this is a church who is prostituting herself. And yet, Hosea, God, is stepping into the midst of that chaos that seems ridiculous and says, I'm going to bring her back to me. And in that, he says, and there I will give her her vineyard to make a valley of Achor, a a door of hope. And there she shall answer the days of her youth. As at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt, and in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. That's a false god. All right? 
For I will remove the names of, of, of the bells and, uh, from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day in the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you in the name of in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I'll answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they will answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, and the wine, and the oil. And I mean, you just get this huge feast. These people are coming together. God is reestablishing that relationship with his people as Hosea is going to do with Gomer. He goes on, verse 23, and I will sow for her, listen to this, what's Jezreel's name? Sow, scatter. Verse 23, and I will sow her for myself in that land. The second thing he says, verse 23, and I will have mercy on who? No mercy. And I will say to not my people, what does he say to them? You are my people. And what will be their response? You are my God. Do we see the beauty of what's taking place here? God is saying that there's a group of people, there's a, a, a Gentile, and they are currently, uh, they are scattered throughout the earth. There are non-Christians right now who are scattered throughout the earth. I am showing them no mercy. Those people, those non-Christians throughout the earth that are scattered amongst the earth, I also, beyond showing them no mercy, they're not my people. But one day I'm going to bring those people together. One day I'm going to call people who have not shown mercy, mercy. And one day I'm going to bring those people who are not my people and they're going to be my people. See, ladies and gentlemen, what takes place in this next story here that I don't have time to go into great detail about is that Hosea goes after Gomer and he finds Gomer like essentially up on a slave block selling herself to the highest bidder. Imagining walking into a, I mean, we can see this in some movies, and we've even seen this on the news. I mean, sex trafficking is a major issue in the world, in America, okay? And you just kind of get this decrepit, nasty, dark, dingy, you just kind of feel the presence of evil when you peer into these places, and imagine for a moment that up on the slave block is, is, is your wife naked. She's been used. She's been abused. She's given herself to who knows who, how many times, and you walk into that and you're seeing all of these sinful men who are like dogs around a stake bidding for your wife as she stands there broken, dirty. And the only way that you can get your wife your wife is the buyer. And that's exactly what Hosea does. He goes in to the deepest, darkest, sinful, disgusting, pornographic place. And he buys something that already belongs to him. He redeems something that is already his. And that's what Hosea does. But ladies and gentlemen, even more beautiful is that's what God has done for every one of us whom he has saved. That's what he's done for every one of us whom he has saved. That's why Paul, in Romans chapter 9, in speaking, he's taking something from the Old Testament that was about the Israelites, and he's equating that to the church. So God has a mission to the Gentiles. And so what is he reminding these Jewish brothers and sisters? He's saying to them, guess what? There's a people. They're scattered all over this world. There's a people out there. Currently, they do not have mercy. 
And currently, they are not my people, but I have a mission to them. I'm about to turn this thing upside down. And the things that you thought I were going to do and the way you thought I was going to do it, I'm going to blow all of your minds because I'm about to take these Gentile dogs out here that are living pagan lives in darkness, scheming, pornography, prostitution, adulterous relationships, drunkenness, lying, gossip, stealing, all of that is equivalent to being in the brothel yourself. And God steps in that scene. He stepped into your scene. He stepped into your life. And he said, that one is mine. That's my boy. That's my girl. And ultimately the image is, he goes, that's my bride. He is the, the bridegroom, the church, the whole church all over this planet. The true followers of Jesus are the bride of Christ. And he steps into the world. You can't get any darker than this fallen world in sin. And what does God do? God sends the groom, Jesus, into that darkness to live amongst us and to redeem us upon the cross. And through his resurrection, he says, that's my bride. And God has been doing that since the foundations of the earth. And he's still doing that. He's still doing it. And you and I, those of us who have been saved, are those people. We see this again. Um, Peter talks about this um, in the book of Peter. Uh, Peter one, first Peter, sorry, first uh, Peter. He even alludes to this. Paul, uh, Peter, excuse me, is writing to uh, the church, and he says this in First Peter chapter two, verse ten. He says. Once, you were not my people, but now you are God's people. Once, you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're a part of the kingdom of God, if you have been saved, that is what God is saying to you. You used to be like everyone else on the planet. You were scattered, you were without mercy, and you were not my people. The church used to be that. The global church used to be that. We used to just be scattered Gentiles all over the planet. And yet God came and upon this rock, upon Jesus himself, he has built the church. And he has taken a people that were scattered all over the planet. He has brought them to himself. He has called them who did not have mercy and has given them mercy. He has called them not my people and now they are my people. Jesus is all about the church. And what makes up the church? Not a building, a people. A you, a me, a he, a she, a they, an us, a we are those people. And that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Is God done with the Israelites? Just the Jewish nation? He's not. What does he tell us? Verse 27, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Through the number of sons of Israel, Be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And Isaiah predicted, and then he goes on to quote Isaiah. Uh, briefly on this, because I'm going to go over some more of this in the next couple of weeks, he talks more about Israel in chapter 11 of the book of Romans, and so I'm going to hit this harder here in a few weeks. So what is God going to do with Israel? He even tells us here in his scripture, ladies and gentlemen, God is going to save gazillions of Gentiles. And he is doing that. Study history. Read the news. A majority of most Jewish people do not believe in Jesus. Still to this day, still to this day, we as Gentile believers outnumber them like by tons. All right? I can't think of a bigger word than gazillions. Or bazillions, whatever I made up, all right? A bunch, all right? Though there are tons of ethnic Jews, what does he tell us? Only a remnant of them will be saved. Now, that remnant, though, 
I believe, and I'm going to prove this to you, I hope, I hope God does in a few weeks, that that remnant, though, will in the end be very large. I believe that there's going to be a massive revival amongst the Jews. And I pray that there is. And I think that Paul alludes to that, okay? I just don't want to get put the cart above the horse, okay? So in the next few weeks, has God done in his ministry to the Israelites? Please don't walk away from here, okay? But you also need to be very careful about edifying an ethnic group when the scripture doesn't do that. Okay? Because here's what I believe is going to happen. Those Israelites will become a part of the church when they get saved. Because God is about the church. Okay? But I'm trying to... I think we're going to have to go to multiple services, as you can see. And so um, I'm trying to teach myself to be able to prepare for that. So i got to go on. All right. So when we look at this, what is our response? Response. All right? Response to God's mission. All right? I hope that you see the beauty of this today. I'm going to give you some very practical, I think, responses to God being a missionary that we're going to see over the next several weeks. I'm going to give you three of them. If you want to write them down, you can. If not, just stare at me, nod your head, say amen every now and then. I'll feel really good about myself when I go home today. All right, so responses. Thank you, Adam. Mm, preach it. All right, can I get to preach it? All right. I guess not. Um, so response to God's mission. Number one, number one, not could, each one of these are sermons. Number one, be under the authority of Scripture or live under the authority of Scripture. Not personal preference. Not personal preference. And this is just an implication that you can see into the text. When there is a problem within the church, how does Paul address that problem? With Scripture. He addresses the issue with Scripture. Ladies and gentlemen, even in a young church plant, we can see this taking place. That a lot of times our issues that we have, wherever you go to church, aren't really issues with the Scripture. A lot of places. They're issues with personal preference. Okay? You can't build a church on personal preference. Because you know what you'll eventually do? Get tired of somebody else's preference being trumped over yours. And you'll leave. And you'll hop from church to church, from place to place, just trying to find a place that meets your personal preference. Ladies and gentlemen, God has not called us to be a people of security, safety, and comfort. He has called us to be a people of the Word, who know the Word, who digest the Word, who live this Word, who are hearers of this Word, who are doers of this Word. Our lives are cut apart, set aside, royal priesthood holy nation why because of what God has done to us and what he is teaching us through our words and yet we pride ourselves on biblical ignorance and fighting and and division even within the church and it's not even over biblical things it's not over biblical things the bible never says blessed are the dumb okay it doesn't say that What is it constantly beckoning us to do, pushing into us, to get into this, to know this, to have something called, everyone has a doctrine, ladies and gentlemen. But the Bible calls us to sound doctrine, all right? And he's constantly telling us, "Get, get in this, and please don't tell me, ladies and gentlemen, that you don't have time. Yet that's our daily excuse. Truth of the matter, we don't make time. We don't make time. We don't make time. All right? We like video games and fake farms on our iPads and television. Okay? We like food. We like entertainment. You know, there's nothing better on a Sunday afternoon. Now I know why my dad always sits in a recliner, because my wife bought me one. And I don't sit in it except for on Sundays. Because if I said it on any other day, I would never get out of it. Ever. I have to discipline myself. Only on Sundays, I sit in the recliner. All right? Usually if you come to my house, I I don't sit in it a lot. I let other people sit in it because I will never get up 
All right? So it's, it's not a matter of time. You will do what you most love, ladies and gentlemen. You will. We all do that. You will carve out time for things you really love. Like November 1st. Do not call me that entire week of November 1st. Because there are animals with antlers that taste good that I am carving out time. I will become obsessed at my home here in a few weeks of watching videos of men. Look at that elusive white-tailed deer. Look at him. He's eating corn. I mean, I just like sitting in a tree, which is weird, by myself, reading the Bible and waiting for Bambi to walk by. It's awesome. And I can let 50 Bambies walk by. But I carve out, I get up extra early. So don't tell me you don't like getting up early. Don't tell me you don't want to stay up late. Because if, if your favorite team is playing and they go into double overtime, you'll stay up for that. If, if the fish are biting at 6, and that means I got to get up at 4, we'll get up and do that. All right? We will do those things. We DVR our shows so that we can binge watch them. Okay? We'll do those things. We will carve out time. We, we will dedicate these things to those opportunities. Why? Because we love those things. It can't be about what you think about. It's got to be what Scripture says. I am calling us as a church to daily quiet times with the Lord. And if you don't know how to do that, you need to come speak to me, Pastor Justin, Pastor BJ. I want to teach you, train you for what it means to have a daily quiet time with God. Because here's what I know. My preaching is amazing. But it is not enough to feed you this week. I said it humbly. <laughs> All right? It's not enough to feed you. I've been trying to lose weight. I've been eating like a bird for two weeks. It's about to kill me. The thing supposed to be making me alive is about to kill me. All I do is think about food. All right? And my wife eating ice cream right next to me. Ah. All right? Because I love ice cream. Why don't you pick me up some ice cream? You want some ice cream? Oh, you can't have it. Ah. All right? But it, it causes a transformation daily. Without excuse, ladies and gentlemen, what is going on is so important in your life that we do not spend time with the Almighty God. There is nothing greater in your day. Ladies, gentlemen, most of our kids is not going to play a professional sport. Yet we will carve out our lives and our evenings for that to happen. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, there is no excuse for why we are not reading the scriptures to our kids and praying with them on a regular basis. Except for you don't want to. What does Paul do? He knows the word. He preaches the word. This is the same example that Jesus did. Anytime he had a problem, anytime he had an issue, it was because of the word. His opinion was not based upon his opinions. It was based upon God's word. If you have an issue within a church, if you have an issue with somebody, make sure that there is a biblical issue there, not just a personal preference issue. The second thing is this. Oh, one more thing about that. Mission communities. I don't know who does this and who doesn't do this, but we give you guys a devotional. Like, you're going to get out of your mission community what you sacrificially give to it. What you sacrificially give to it. Come prepared. Come prepared. The devos are given to you for a reason, for you to do them and share with what God is teaching to you. But if you don't come prepared, you're just showing us it's not really important to you. All right? Okay, back in. Send emails to bjstroutman at redneck.com. Oh, oh. I thought you said redneck. I was like, Lord Jesus, be with the girl in the back row. May you call her your people again. All right. So, number two, be on mission. God is what? A missionary. He has a mission. We are called what? Mission church. Why? Because we want to be a part of God's mission. We look ridiculous to claim to be followers of Jesus and not share our faith. Ridiculous. We need to come up with a really lame name. 
we're kind of like Christians. But we don't share our faith. You know why we don't share our faith? is because we don't believe it. We're more concerned about our popularity, our growth, people liking us, all those sorts of things instead of sharing our faith. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm, I'm pleading with you. I'm, if you don't know how to share your faith, please sit down with one of us. I want to train you how to share your faith. We have to be the evangelistic missionary opportunity in our neighborhoods, with people we meet, random strangers, whoever comes knocking on your door, annoy them if they're trying to sell you something and say, I'm not listening to anything until I tell you something that's more important. In your jobs, in your families, in your neighborhoods, ladies and gentlemen, Mission Church will never grow evangelistically until you and I start to engage people with the gospel. With the gospel. It's got to happen. That's what Jesus did. That's what we're called to do. All right, third thing is, God is going to save people who are currently far from him. God is going to save people who are currently far from him. This is what I know, ladies and gentlemen. Some of you have wayward children. And they are far from God. Some of you have wayward parents who are far from God. Some of you have a wayward husband. You have a wayward wife who are, are far from God. You have wayward friends. You have wayward neighbors. You have wayward extended family. And this deeply, deeply grieves you, ladies and gentlemen. And I want to beg of you, plead with God. Pray. And plead with God to save them. Plead with God. As Dr. Tim Booker, who came here and did a uh, teach, taught us how to do evangelism on a systematic Saturday, he told us, don't ever say no for someone. I want to encourage you, ladies and gentlemen, do not say no. Do not give up on them. Do not give up on the gospel. Do not give up on the opportunity that Jesus can save them and work in them no matter what they are doing, no matter what is going on in their lives, no matter um, how they're doing in their lives at this current moment, even by what they are saying. Declare, pray, share with them, asking God to move inside of that individual's life, even to their last breath. And after they take that breath, still pray, God, show mercy upon these people. God is going to save people who are currently far from him. Ladies and gentlemen, we as the church, as a church, as people, maybe individuals that are in this room today, you must get this. God is Hosea in that story. And you and I are Gomer. We're Gomer. And, and maybe we don't prostitute ourselves to another bed. But at the end of the day, we prostitute ourselves to a multitude of idols in other ways. And that can be different for every one of us. Relationships, I see it all the time. Especially amongst our singles. You have a worship problem. Television, buying stuff, lying, gossip, food, sports, busyness, all of these issues. We're laying down our lives. We are getting in the beds of idols. Of idols. Following Jesus is a sacrificial life because he is a sacrificial Messiah. And we all struggle, myself included, with prostituting ourselves to things of this world that are not God. We fill our time with it. We fill our mind with it. Ending illustration of this. We see it with God and the church. We see it even in the illustration of Hosea and Gomer. Ladies and gentlemen, I've, I've been married now to Laura for 12 years. And, and I'm 
I'm here to tell you, I, without the person and work of Jesus, um, I don't know how any marriage makes it. My running joke, and some of you have heard this, is that there's not a person on the planet that makes me more mad than my wife. And I've been abused. I've had church people practically drag me behind chariots, gossip about me, yell at me, scream at me. I've been cussed out from preachers to people who just go to church. I mean, lots of people. I've had people say stuff about my boy with special needs. I mean, all this sort of stuff. Okay? And none of them, none have made me more furious than that woman who her parents freely gave to me. Okay? No one brings me more joy, more love, more happiness, more kindness. She is my best friend in the world. All right? She is my best friend on this planet. You guys are awesome. She's my bestie. BFS forever. All right? She's it. You aren't. She is. And she makes me more mad than any of you. More furious. She has caused me more pain and grieving. And like laying on the ground, weeping. Why me? All of that. Than any of you. And you know what? I have of her. I have of her. And yet, I have probably done way more worse things to her than she has to me. Her greatest pains have probably come from me. Okay? And in that, yet every time, after 16 years of being together... Every time that there is grace shown for breaking of vows, because we both broke them. Every time there is grace there, I think of the story of Hosea and Gomer. As it illustrates where we have both, there have been moments where she has been Hosea toward me. And I was undeserving of it. And there have been moments where I have been Hosea toward her, where she has been undeserving of it. Because of the person and work of Jesus. He must be the center of your life. Let me ask you this. You can go ahead and DJ. Are you drifting? Are you being enticed by the things of this world? Are, are you being eluded? And it even justifying the drifting away from God that is taking place in your lives. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm convinced, I say this often, it is, it is not a major leap away from God. It is a slow fade that eventually you recognize that you are leap years away from Him. And it is typically small little steps that get you to that position. And maybe on this day, just like Hosea, and ultimately, like God, God is saying to you in this place, you're mine. You're mine. That drink isn't greater than the, the drink that I can give you. That relationship that you're seeking isn't greater than the relationship that I can give you. You need to stop this prostituting of your life and you need to come home and I'm going to take care of you I'm going to feed you I'm going to nourish you I'm, I, I'm, I'm going to take care of your life I'm going to take care of your heart and your soul are there rough times still ahead? yes but you will find security and safety in me your God, your groom your husband ladies and gentlemen if that is you here today I pray in some not weirdly but biblical way prophetically that today that you will hear from God and he is screaming it to you come home come home I'm here for you let's pray Lord we thank you God for your grace and for your mercy
We thank you, Jesus, that you would just be exalted in a powerful, powerful way, God. We pray, Jesus, that you would be lifted high, Father. We pray, God, that we would celebrate what you have done in our lives as we have given our lives and lay down in the bed of sin, Satan, and death and have made a home there. And yet, Lord, you bust through that door, finding us in, in the bed of our adulterers. And you rescue us from that. And though we kick and we scream, God, there becomes the realization that you are far greater than what I felt like and thought that that was giving me. So God, I pray that you would do this in this place today in the hearts of these men and women. Lord, that if they're not saved, that you would save them. Lord, if they are saved, that you would encourage them. If they're walking away from you, God, I pray like a divine tractor beam that you would reach down, grab them, and bring them back to yourself. We pray all of this in your precious and holy name, Jesus. Amen and amen. Stand with us as we respond in worship.